Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. I'm just going to start by reading our main passage. I, I like to do that. I like to just get our, get our bearings by, by putting the passage out there that we're going to be talking about today. And that passage is in Galatians 5. If you've been here the past week or two, that's not a surprise to you. But we're going to go ahead and read Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. You can open your Bibles to that. You can look at the screen behind my head or the screen that will be on the, the live stream down beneath me. And this is what it says. <clears throat> so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful desire, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit... Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So this is our passage. The reason this is our passage is uh, we have started into a series this summer that is going to be based right here. You're actually going to see this Galatians 5 passage a lot, probably every week. (laughs) You'll have this read to you, or we'll look at that together. And that's because this series of sermons is a series of meditations on the fruit of the Spirit. And all throughout the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a fruit of the Spirit, thinking deeply about it. What does that mean? What are some applications in this fruit of the Spirit? And why is it called that? And so today, as uh, Lee introduced that series to us last week, I get to start us off with the first meditation on the first fruit of the Spirit listed, which is love. And that's what we'll be looking at today. So out of that whole passage that we just read, I'm going to pull one word, love. I'm going to preach on that, which is a little broad. So how do you start? How do, how do you, you know, Lee calls me up. Say, hey, I want you to do a, a sermon on the fruit of the Spirit. I'm like, okay, what it's about? He says, love. <laughs> All right? It's pretty big. Love. What do, you, what do you do to talk about love? So I'm sitting there thinking, how do I start talking about love? And I, I just kind of thought, well, let's start by thinking about what it means. What comes to your mind? When you hear the word love, because there are lots of different definitions. It may sound simple, but in our day and age, of course, it certainly is not. So at the risk of being cliche, I kind of went online and did a little research on kind of modern conceptions of love. Um, The New York Times has a, a section called Modern Love that is about 15 or 20 years old, and they actually did a an essay contest for college students a a couple of years ago, and they had over 3,600 entries. 
The winning entry was pretty moving. It was by a student who wrote a whole essay about how she learned the meaning of love when she came to the United States to study and then found out she was separated from her parents who became refugees in Syria during the Civil War. I also poked around and I got to Urban Dictionary, which had a, which had a write-in for definitions of love. And so they posted 31 definitions of love. And these are some of what those sound like. One of them said, an intense feeling of affection. Another one said, love is that tingly feeling you get and you don't know why. Love is giving them the last piece of cake, no matter how much you want it. This is great, isn't it? Another one said, love is individual. You love them in your own way. And I don't even know what that means. I'm, sitting there, I'm reading that, and I'm like, what, what is that talking about? Love is something you give for the sake of making the other person happy. Now, most of these definitions, as you can kind of pick up on, these are, these are a form of this feelings-oriented picture of romantic love, which yeah, is very common. Um, this is probably what we would call Hollywood love, and we're all familiar with this, and of course we've all experienced a kind of romantic love that, that fits that. There's another slant on love extremely common in the 21st century in the West, and that is love as freedom. Have you ever thought about this? You know, a world's modern definition of love that I also came across said this, an unquestioning affirmation of another's lifestyle and beliefs given out a desire for the other person's happiness. Now, you'll notice in that there is that kernel of love being selfless, of love wanting another person's best, but it's very slyly coupled with another modern assumption which says that the way to achieve someone's best is by helping them achieve unrestrained freedom. In other words, letting them do whatever they want or affirming that a person can just live according to their feelings. Now, this is something that, that philosophers call absolute negative freedom. If you want the technical term, negative freedom is the idea of being free from some constraint as opposed to the idea of being free to pursue some noble aim. And this is a very Western idea. I mean, we have all seen in our society this idea of tolerance that has arisen up and tolerance now moving to the idea of affirmation. Tolerance is not quite good enough, but we have to affirm. And you might be surprised to learn that this cultural idea has its roots in Christianity. Because it is true, the fundamental societal morals and the idea of personal freedom in the West are originally derived from Protestantism. It's this idea of personal salvation where every human is equal at the foot of the cross that kind of gives rise to this idea of individualism and freedom from tribal and cultural restrictions on conscience. This idea that we are free to pursue a relationship with God in salvation, free from cultural restraints. Of course, modern society has taken all these ideas to such an extreme that it is, is far surpassed any idea of biblical love or righteousness. And so today, we hold this idea of absolute negative freedom as an absolute, and modern society considers any personal restriction at all as kind of an affront, with the result that the only sin not tolerated is intolerance. And we're not going to do a whole message on that or get into the sociology of it, but basically it kind of comes from this idea that we have redefined the idea of self or identity of who we are as being a personal inward psychological choice 
In other words, we kind of live according to feelings, and not only that, but we, we say those feelings are, are the essence of who I am, and so that's why even today, to disagree with someone's opinion or feelings is not just to disagree, but actually to attack their own personal identity, because we started deriving identity from a place like that, and so, bringing it back to love, the idea of love then is affirming someone living according to their authentic self, or in other words, the feelings that they have inside. This is very 21st century America. This is kind of our cultural mantra. Now, of course, that definition of love isn't biblical either. 1 Corinthians 13, the classic love passage, which we would do well to read, in verses 4 and 5, it says this. It'll be on the screen. It says, love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And we, we hear this read at a lot of weddings, it's a classic love passage. It was also one of the answers written into that Urban Dictionary contest that they had, which I was gratified to see. But there's a verse that comes after verses 4 and 5 that doesn't get a lot of attention paid to it. And it's verse 6, and it says this, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, what does that mean? I think we can kind of see the evident idea here is that if we truly love someone, we do not rejoice or take pleasure in anything that brings harm. Love does not rejoice in evil. It does not rejoice in something that is hurtful. It does not rejoice in something that goes against God's grain of creation, the way he has made the world, the way he has created human beings. It does not rejoice in something that goes against goodness. No, love rejoices in the truth. And so, in love, we would never rejoice in something that was bad for people or went against God's intentions or wishes. I mean, think about it. If you had a sibling or a child, or someone you knew who was addicted to crystal meth, or maybe you saw them even becoming an alcoholic, would you rejoice in that? Would you pat them on the back and say, hey, if that's really what you want to do, go for it, man. I'm all with you on this. If that makes you feel like, like, like yourself, that's great. Would you do that? No, of course you wouldn't do that. You would do everything in your power to try to break them of this addiction. You would do everything in your power to try to rescue them from that. And that's this idea of love does not rejoice in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So that definition of love can't be right either. Now that 1 Corinthians 13.6 does cut both ways, which we will talk about in a moment. But there has to be a better definition of love that we could understand that reflects God's heart and his instruction for us as believers. And really as all human beings on earth. And so let's explore for a second some of the ways that God expresses this idea of love in Scripture. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk us through a number of passages that describe the essence of love as it is presented to us in the Bible. We're just going to read them one after the other. And I just want you to kind of follow along, listen to what they say, and kind of let them wash over us. They'll be on the screen. The first one is 1 John 4, 7 through 11. It says, Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God, <clears throat> excuse me, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Here's Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And lastly, here's 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Do you see it? Do you see the common theme that kind of runs through all these passages? That's right. Every one of these passages that talks about love points to the sacrificial, life-giving offering of Christ as the perfect picture and model that explains what love is. Every one of these passages, when it talks about love and seeks to define it, it points to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. The very last passage in 1 John 3.16 even says it directly. This is how we know what love is, and it points at Jesus. This is the picture of godly love. So what is love then? Here is probably a better definition that a Christian writer I found had to offer. I really liked it. In light of those passages, we might define love as this. Love is the overflow of joy in God which causes you to sacrificially meet the needs of others by placing their interests and well-being above your own. I'm going to read that again because it's a long but full sentence. Love is the overflow of joy in God, which causes you to sacrificially meet the needs of others by placing their interests and well-being above your own. Now, in this kind of love, we might say that there are even two, two kinds within that I would call it a love of affection versus loving by faith. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great Puritan preacher and writer in the, in the 1700s, he, he called these kinds of love, on one hand, the love of complacency, and on the other, the love of benevolence, using his old English language, the love of complacency. Complacency then had more of a meaning of satisfied happiness, whereas today it has more of a connotation in our English of passivity. But he talked about the love of complacency versus the love of benevolence. I would say, perhaps in our language, love of affection versus loving by faith. Meaning, the love of affection is just a natural, spontaneous joy in something, a natural affection that we might have for something, right? We might say, I love Chicago-style deep dish pizza. I love my daughter. I love the Atlanta Braves, whatever that may be. There's just this natural affection that kind of comes out that is a joy and it is a response of love. A love of beneficence or a love of, I would say, loving by faith can express itself as that overflow of affection. But it doesn't depend on affection. Romans 5.8 is an example of this. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, God makes a choice, right? And this is the idea that Jesus teaches when he says, love your enemy, do good to them that hate you, pray for those who mistreat you. In other words... There is sometimes that love is not a natural overflow of affection, but is a difficult choice 
of putting the needs of someone else above my own and executing that. In that sense, it is not a love of natural affection and pleasure to do that, even though sometimes it results in that. But it is out of a joy of, in God and, and a conviction of living righteously that we make a choice to love someone with godly love. Listen, there are lots of people in the world that are difficult to love. I'm one. <laughs> I imagine that all of us in this room in some way or at some point have been one of those people who are difficult to love. You don't believe me? Just work in an office for a year. I mean, it's like someone in that office will play that role. Hopefully not you. But this idea that there are, are people in the world that are difficult to love means occasionally we have to love by faith. In other words, we have to make a choice to love because we love God. And because God has loved us, so we ought to love one another. And this is what we would call a love of benevolence or loving by faith. So in light of that, as I said earlier, 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not rejoice in evil but delights in the truth. And I said that that cuts both ways. And what I mean by that is this. Many of us think we are practicing love when we actually are not, right? Um, what the love of Christ that we just considered teaches us is that love is not just crowing about some culture war opinion. Love is not just typing out some 140-character screed on social media, on Twitter, Love is not just yelling at your kids to behave. It's not just telling an addict to stop being addicted. Love is sacrificially putting someone else ahead of yourself, like Jesus did. In other words, if we're really practicing love, then on the other side, on the receiving side, is someone who has a name. There is someone on the other side who is receiving the benefit and blessing of your sacrifice. And without that, we are not really fulfilling that biblical definition of love. But this is what we are called to do. To merely dispense opinions is no more to love than any of the worldly definitions. So how do we, as believers, carry out this godly, Christ-reflecting love that we have received? It's a great question, and it's so individual in our fragmented world, and it's going to be individual according to the needs of the moment and to whoever that person is on the receiving end. But I, I meditate on this. I, I ask you to just meditate on this with me. We are in Galatians 5, and we are talking about love as a fruit of the Spirit. And I started thinking to myself, why is love called a fruit of the Spirit, something that the filling of the Spirit in us produces. Why is the Holy Spirit necessary to produce this in us? Why do we need that Holy Spirit in order to do this? There does seem to be a spiritual growth component, a Holy Spirit power-giving source necessary for this to come out of us. And I think the answer to those questions actually doesn't take too long to arrive at. You've probably already seen it. It's probably pretty obvious, and it's simply put, is this. This kind of love we're talking about, real love, godly, self-sacrificing love, does not come naturally to sinful human beings like us. We, um, we read 
in the first part of Galatians 5 about the deeds of the flesh and how they are a contrast to that love. And I don't know about you, but when I read those two passages, I identified very much with the former more than the latter as far as my instinctive behavior goes. Many years ago, gosh, probably, probably 15 or 20 years ago now, I had the privilege of, of uh, being in a leadership development program, and I was in a counseling intensive. It was like a, this week-long counseling intensive I did with my wife, Karen. And they just kind of got, got under the hood of our marriage, of our personal lives. And man, they made a mess in there, and it was great. And they, I mean, it was just, it was kind of no holds barred intensive. And, and at one point, I, I feel like as they zeroed in on me, one of the things that they said was, Alan, you don't know how to love. Now, I said it exactly that way, because that's exactly how they said it. They didn't say, Alan, you're not real good at that. Alan, you just don't always know how to, like, do the love part. No, they just said, Alan, you don't know how to love. And what they were pointing at is that there is a great sin that is in my life. And I'll just be vulnerable. It is the sin of selfishness and self-centeredness. And it is a sin I have fought for my whole life. And what, what I mean by that is I am a perfect example of it's all about me-ism. In my life, I have discerned that I have this pattern that whenever something happens, whenever something difficult comes across whenever some event comes along or someone shares something with me, my instinctive first response is to think, how will that impact me? And then once I process that, I can go on to think about maybe another person sometimes. And as this got uncovered more and more, and I just became, saw it more and more in the light and just saw how evil and ugly it was, I began to realize, yeah, that's exactly right. They're right. I don't know how to love. I am not bent that way. And I imagine a number of us would, would say that even though you're probably not as bad as me. And that's why I was actually kind of hesitant to preach this sermon when Lee told me, I'm going to let you do the love part. And I was like, oh, no, anyone but that one. And it was really because I see this great deficiency in my life that love for me has been a growth activity. But I think it's like that for all of us. In Galatians 5, like we read a minute ago, Paul said there are plenty of things that come naturally to us, the deeds of the flesh, sexual immorality, greed, discord, anger, strife. But did you notice what one of those was in verse 20? It was hatred. Hatred is something that comes naturally to us. Hatred is instinctive to us as sinful human beings, not love. And so when Paul says that love is a fruit of the spirit, spirit, what he's saying is we human beings left to ourselves, we are natural haters. We are naturally promoters of ourselves above others. But we are not naturally sacrificial, other-centered lovers. And so for this, we need to deny what comes naturally and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because it's only through the Holy Spirit's power in us that we are actually going to have an ability to love the way Christ did, to love with benevolence, to love our enemies, to love those who are difficult to love, and to love sacrificially. This is the love that Paul holds up as a fruit of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but when I see that kind of love demanded of me, without the Holy Spirit, I feel helpless. But the good news is, we have the Holy Spirit. 
as regenerate men and women who are believers in Christ, the Spirit dwells in us. And we can be filled with that Holy Spirit who can empower us and give us the ability to pursue Christ and follow his pattern and to live righteously in this. And so our hope and our application, of course, is that as we seek the Lord, we would pray, fill me with your Holy Spirit, that this kind of love would come out of me. And because the Holy Spirit is real and powerful in us, he can change us so that that love can occur. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his own son as the atoning sacrifice of our sins. Let's pray. Lord, for that we praise you. Lord Jesus, you are the picture of love for us because no one has greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends, and that's what you have done. Lord, even while we were still sinners, while there was nothing redeemable about us, while we were depraved, while there was no one righteous, not even one, while there was no one who would see God, no one who understands. As Paul goes on in Romans 3, you looked at us and you chose to make the greatest sacrifice. You did not grasp and hold on to your position with God, but you emptied yourself and being found in form as a human, <clears throat> you sacrificed yourself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we praise you and thank you that this is how we know what love is, that you have demonstrated it to us. Lord Jesus, we would pray humbly that you would look upon us as a, a still sin-besotted people, as, a, as a, a people that struggles with a sinful nature until we be changed in a moment with you in heaven. Lord, we want to be lovers like you. And we ask you, please fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be courageous lovers, that we would be self-sacrificial lovers like you loved us, that we would reflect that love that you had for us toward each other and toward those who are not believers, toward those who are easy to love and to, toward those who are difficult to love. And most of all, Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you that we have been the recipients of that love that you were so kind to us that even when we didn't deserve it, you gave yourself for us. You have loved us with an everlasting love that is undeserved. And we praise you and worship you that we have been bathed in it, washed in it, that we are purified in it, that you've saved us and rescued us with a love that we had no right to expect. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. And for that, we worship you.